Pump up the volume on your parenting with Parent Pump Radio. Tune into something different that makes a difference. At Parent Pump Radio, instead of a ripple, we choose to create a splash. Get energized, get inspired, and get informed with how to parent in the new millennium. With your host and parent coach super guide, Jacqueline T.D. Wynn. Hi, this is Jacqueline T.D. Wynn. We're here to pump up your parenting skills, pump up your knowledge, pump up your energy. Welcome to Parent Pump Radio. Our show is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and syndicated on missionsradio.org and liveleadplay.com. Please tag and share our episodes with your friends and whoever you think would enjoy the information. We are trying to get our message out to more and more people. And with your help, we are able to do that. If you're looking for a speaker or leadership development trainer for your organization or event, please go to my website at integrativeminds.com to learn more about what I offer and contact me at info at integrativeminds.com to schedule a meeting time. So our show today is an awesome show, and I have a great guest who is also an author. He has written inspirational books, one calling Convertible Conversation, also The Fishnet Experience. He is also a co-author of Godly Men Make Godly Fathers, Seeing What Really Is, and Notes from Papa. This is scheduled to be released this year in 2018. He has been a pastor of New Life in Christ Church, which he and his wife of 48 years, Kitsy, founded in 1991 in Lawrence, Kansas. And in 1999, his church started a medical clinic for homeless individuals, the Heartland Medical Clinic, where he was CEO for seven years. He continues to serve the medical needs of thousands of patients each year. And his message is simple but powerful. Grace is unconditional love in action. It focuses on helping people experience and enjoy God's love without conditions for all people. He has found that knowing God personally leads to enjoying and experiencing life at a much higher level. So ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to Paul Gray. Hi, Paul. Hi, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm glad to have you on. I want to talk a little bit about your past life in music. Because I know when you set my bio, it's almost like you have two lives, this life of a writer and author and a pastor. But then there's this uh, this band that you play. So tell me about it. Well, when I meet new people and they find out I'm a pastor and they want to know, you know, where were you ordained or what that kind of thing? I tell them, well, I took the traditional route into ministry. I was a nightclub owner and jazz musician. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And that offers uh, us a little opportunity for a conversation there. But yeah, I started out, uh, I, you know, I was a musician uh, growing up in public schools. I came to the University of Kansas in 1965 on a music scholarship, and I started a jazz group while I was there. And we were just extremely fortunate, uh, as I look back now, that the, every one of the guys in the band was very talented and went on to do uh, really great things with their career. And we did some, uh, we flew out from Kansas City to uh, Hollywood to do some different national TV shows while we were still in college and made our first record then. And we continued to play. Uh, after that, I, I bought a music store uh, here in Lawrence and 
that soon turned into to five stores, sort of like rabbits and multiplying. And uh, but during that time, I I also was the uh, director of the Kansas National Guard band and continued to play with my band. And at the end of uh, well, in 1979, I I sold my businesses and uh, traveled full time with my band from coast to coast. And we we did a lot of educational things. We played. Uh, school assembly programs, did educational workshops, and in addition to playing convention shows and community concerts and things like that. And then we'd come home on the weekend to play at my nightclub. And so I did that well for the first 20 years of my adult life. It, it was pretty much all centered around music, at least my occupation. Wow. And I know you also, besides the band, you've owned a variety of businesses. I, yeah, I started a, well, in addition to the music stores, uh, Another guy and I started a long-distance telephone company uh, back in the mid-'80s, and uh, that also did very well. We were very fortunate with that. And um, then when I decided for, to make a career change and become a pastor, fortunately, I, I had saved up enough money from uh, my businesses that it was I was able to live off of that for the first uh, few years that I didn't make any money being a pastor. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's kind of cool if you can go up to your congregation and start jamming away, do some jazz rendition. Well, I do that occasionally. I've always been very musically oriented uh, in our, our group and uh, had a lot of musicians. And I don't play with them uh, often anymore because they're very good and they don't need me. Uh, but I do occasionally and I have throughout the years and still love to play. That's great. Please continue. We know music, it's profound on the brain development and just the human psyche. And, and I love jazz. Well, I, I see that you have a unique program that integrates music and art to release pain, negative emotions and trauma. And that, that sounds very much like musical therapy, which uh, I'm familiar with. So we got something in common. there. Absolutely. I think music transcends so many things that we don't even know about. And uh, yeah, the music program that I got involved with, it's actually music and art combined. And so the being able to listen and then kinesthetically draw really help releases and reduces a lot of negative emotions. It does. I, I remember one time when I was traveling with my band and we, we had a, comp, a contract with the government to play a certain number of retirement centers. And uh, we were at one uh, in Austin, Texas, and there was a... a a nice-looking lady who appeared to be in her late 40s or early 50s, uh, who was, uh, they brought in the wheelchair, and uh, she was unresponsive. She just, uh, you know, sat there. And as we started playing, she kind of perked up a little bit. And then we did, uh, we asked the audience to sing along with something that we played. And, and I can't remember uh, what it was, Bye Bye Blackbird or something like that. And she started singing, and she perked up, and I just, I was fascinated by by watching her, and then she would turn around and, you know, engage with other people and stuff, and the, uh, the program director for that retirement center came up to me after the concert, and I mean, she, she just was gushing. She said, that particular woman, uh, her husband had a, a really big business. Uh, he died young of a heart attack. She inherited the business. Uh, didn't know what to do and couldn't handle it and uh, basically became comatose after a short period of time. And they just had to put her in this uh, high-end nursing home. And she hadn't talked since, since she'd been there. And wow. because of the music and the sing-along, she snapped out of that. 
and uh, started singing and talking and, uh, you know, reverted back to her old self. And that was a really cool thing. Yeah, it is. We know the research on the Mozart effect on children. And uh, I know the program I'm in, it's, it's actually a program from France, and they've done studies also um, with Alzheimer, a lot of Alzheimer patients, just like you were saying, elderly, and it really has profound changes. I don't want to keep going about the music because I really am fascinated about your book, and I want the listeners to know about your book. It's called Convertible Conversation, and it's also an Amazon bestseller in four categories, two of which have to do with grandparenting. So what's unique about your perspective of being a grandparent? Well, I have three wonderful kids and six unbelievable uh, grandchildren, and I, I love them all, and uh, I don't get to spend much time with five of them, but uh, one of them I do. He, he lives with us. Our middle daughter was married, and her husband was actually uh, the uh, associate pastor of our church, and we worked together all the time and did a lot of things, and uh, they had a little boy, and then her husband uh, had a recurrence of cancer, Ewing's sarcoma, and uh, had a, just a horrible year and died uh, when he was 29 years old. And so their little boy, our grandson, uh, who was very close to his dad, he was three years old at the time, experienced his dad being involved with him and playing with him and everything. And uh, then one day he was in the hospital and he had to go there and see him uh, uh, and climb up on his bed with him and everything. And so, uh, and then uh, after he died, uh, my daughter and him uh, moved in with us, um, and which were very, we were very glad to have the space for them and for them to be able to do it. Now that was nine years ago, and they're they're still here, and we have a, a great time together. And I, you know, I'm not his dad, obviously, but I'm sort of a, a father figure to him, and I'm with him every morning. You know, we have breakfast together, and then uh, uh, during his grade school years, I would uh, walk him to school in good weather or taking to school, and uh, that was about a half hour each way uh, for us because we took our time. Uh, and then even today, I'm here uh, every day when he gets home from school off the bus, and then he and I do things together. Like later this afternoon, we're going to go out to a lake here and go exploring. And so I have a sort of a, a unique position as a grandfather because I'm in a process of helping raise our grandson who experienced the pretty severe trauma, you know, when his dad died. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that boy's lucky to have you. It's mutual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true, I'm sure. So there's a chapter in your book that's titled The Sin of Certainty. And why don't you tell the listeners what you mean by the sin of certainty and what your chapter talks about? Well, let me give you a, a, a scripture verse that goes with that. It's uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 2, and I'm going to give you uh, the translation from the, the Mirror Bible. Um, the Apostle Paul was writing this to one of the leaders of the, of the church and telling him how to help the people there, what to tell the people, and he said, gossip is out. Never had anything bad to say about anyone. You don't have to win every argument. Instead, avoid quarreling, be appropriate, and always show perfect courtesy to one and all. And that thing about uh, you don't have to win every argument. I'm sometimes a slow learner, Jackie, and I, <laughs> uh, you know, for a long time, if I thought I absolutely knew um, 
what was right about something or the truth about something uh, and somebody felt differently, boy, I just felt like I had to uh, hold on and, uh, you know, hunker down and stay there and argue and, and prove my point. Um, and I just felt like I knew I was right. And so I, I, I wasn't inflexible. I wouldn't give the other person the, the opportunity to uh, – uh, really state what they were thinking or to validate that. And, uh, and I would sometimes in my mind just judge them or lump them into a negative category. Um, and you know, this, it, it's not good at all. I, I might be, I might be a little hard on myself there, but, um, we've all been around people who, uh, just know that they're right and aren't willing to look at any other, uh, uh, possibility and then uh, sometimes take people who think differently than them and lump them into a, a category, uh, which is not fair at all. And I call that the, the sin of certainty. If you're just certain that you're right and having to prove that, uh, you know, it, it's uh, you can call it a sin. So that's where that comes from. Yeah, what I like about this chapter is that people who believe they are right, this is what I found, is that it doesn't matter how much facts or proof that you can show them that what they're thinking is incorrect or there is a different way of thinking. They will just come back with something else that proves that they're right. So there's no way of really convincing them. Even if you have doctors and scientists and factual data, it's what they believe and that's it. Right. And Yeah, and that's un unfortunate. What I've found is that it certainly doesn't do any good no. <laughs> to... Uh, to do that, but basically, instead of being like that, just loving the person, hanging out, being with them, trying to find things that that you have in common, mutual uh, interests, and things like that, build a relationship with them, and instead of condemning them or judging them or lumping them into a category, instead of that, just giving them grace, unconditional love, and acceptance. Uh, and then what I do is, in the process of that, I just pray and I, I ask God to show me. Okay, Lord, what, what's driving that need to be right in that person? And how do you want me to help? Them? And I found, Jackie, that, that when I do that, the Lord will tell me. You know, I don't hear an audible voice very often, but, you know, I'll, uh, sometimes God will give me uh, something that there's no way I, I would ever have thought of uh, that's happened in their background or that they're going through or something like that. And then I'll go, oh, I see. And so then I can. I can start to uh, gently address that and end up in a position where I'm able to help somebody. Now, do you find it where the person really has to want to receive the help for you to help them? Or have you found that you can help people even if, like you've been able to change people's mind, even initially they didn't want to? No, they have to want it. I, that's a God thing. I, I, I think God uh, draws all of us to him and his timing and in his ways. And if he can use someone like you or me or anybody by asking questions with people, when we go deep enough, then we're able to find out, you know, what it is that's producing that in them. And if we can, if we can gently and lovingly uh, and gracefully help them see that, that uh, you know, through that process, they will. I think God uses that to help people want to change. Most most people who are dogmatic like that, I, at least I can tell you from my own experience and from others, we don't like being like that. And we know nobody else does either. It's just, it's something that we do and we can't control ourselves. And we just, 
you know, and then generally feel badly afterwards. Oh man, why did I act like that? Why didn't I, why wasn't I nicer? So I, I think God uses that to, uh, you can say humble a person or cause them to see the flaw in what they're doing and then to want to change. Do you address this in your book at all? I do. Yeah. There's a chapter in it where, uh, the, the book is about uh, a little boy who loses his parents and then his grandparents raise him. And in the process of that, uh, he you know plays on a little league baseball team and stuff like that. And there's a particular game where the grandfather's in the stands and the boy's playing and the, uh, and the umpire is just not very good. He's you know, making a lot of bad calls. <clears throat> and there's another parent in the stands who just really gets on this umpire and points out all of his faults and, and does it real loud so that everybody at the in the little crowd there, including the players and the umpire, can hear it. The umpire is a young African-American guy, and the angry parent, who has to prove he's right every time the ump makes a bad call, starts throwing in some racial slurs and uh, a bunch of negative things and stuff like that. The umpire then kicks him out of the stance. I've actually been in situations where that's happened, where the, the umpire exercises their right, turns around, goes over to the stands and says, uh, the game can't continue until you leave. I'm ordering you out of here. It's a very embarrassing thing for everybody. But so, you know, when this happens in the book, the little boy asked his grandfather afterwards, he said, you know, what, what was wrong with that guy? And uh, uh, they get to talk about it. And then at, after the next game, when the parents uh, and the kids get together and go out for ice cream afterwards and stuff, uh, you know, it turns out that the grandfather in the book sits at a table with this guy who had, uh, you know, abused the umpire. And through a series of events, the guys found out that this abusive parent lost his job. His money is run out. He's not going to be able to make a house payment. He's totally worried. And he's got so much on his mind that those are things going on in his life that are driving him um, to be like that. And so uh, then he's able to work with the guy and not just criticize his behavior. Uh, you know, which he, he has no right to do anyway. Um, and over the course of time, the guy's very receptive and and, uh, and he changes and the grandfather's able to help him get another job. And so it all works out well. Yeah. So is there hope for someone who has to be right? Like, is there hope for them to change? And, and if yes, have you been able to do that? Gosh, if there wasn't hope, I'd be in the wrong profession. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, there's hope for everybody in that situation and in other situations, too. And again, at the, with me working with people and helping people like that, it, it's certainly not by pointing out their behavior and, and putting them down and stuff. That's actually doing what they're doing. But when I had the opportunity to build a relation with somebody and don't condemn or judge them, just give them grace and unconditional love and acceptance. That melts people's hearts. You know, the, the old saying, Jackie, that, uh, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. There's hope. And, I, you know, occasionally there's somebody that I'm not able to help, but I'm confident that God has somebody else down the line that w- would be better able to relate to them and help them. But, yeah, there's hope for everybody. Great. Now, you talked a bit about being a grandfather to your grandson, and it sounds wonderful. If you ever need someone to adopt as your grandchild, I'm available. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So what basic needs have you observed from your grandson since you've been raising him, helping raising him? 
even though he's had this trauma, and in addition to that, he's on the, the autism spectrum, uh, which affects different things with his behavior and how he's able to comprehend things and stuff like that. He, he does have some special needs, even though with that, he, he's, he has the same needs that I believe every person, uh, young or old, has, but especially the kids have, especially the kids have. And those three basic needs are the need for unconditional love. Just knowing without a shadow of a doubt that there's somebody that loves them unconditionally because they do, not because that person is necessarily lovable or have done anything to deserve it or earn it or expect it. I mean, we all want unconditional love. And the second thing is, is unconditional acceptance. Because, you know, we all mess up. You know, I've been talking about the uh, need to be right and how you know how horrible that is. Well, I <laughs> I still have to find that uh, welling up in me sometimes. But what I want is, even when I mess up with that, like with my wife or somebody, I, I still crave unconditional acceptance. And and I believe everybody does, and especially kids. They want to be accepted for who they are and not feel like they have to perform. Uh, you know, to get their their parents or grandparents' acceptance. And then I think everybody, in addition to unconditional love and unconditional acceptance, everybody really wants to have the confidence that, that they're valued, that they have real value apart from what they do. Uh, not just value because they're good at sports or good academically or good musically or whatever, but just that, that they have inherent value just because of who they are. And I, I think we all, at any age, uh, have those needs, but it's it's especially important in the developmental years and, and with little kids. And, you know, any or all of those needs can be magnified when, when a child experiences the loss and trauma of losing a parent, losing a parent or, you know, maybe having a, uh, a divorce and not seeing a parent anymore and thinking, something's wrong with them, they don't have value, they're they're not accepted or don't have unconditional love because, you know, one parent's not there anymore, things like that. So those things, knowing that everybody needs those, and especially little kids who are vulnerable, making sure that with you, that they know that they have absolute unconditional love and acceptance and, and their value just for who they are. I completely agree with that. I feel that sometimes we do need a lot of acceptance and other people need to accept who we are. And I also believe that there is something that we also need to look at ourselves and say, what else can I do that's better? So with that, I know you have some solutions that you can give us both as raising our children and if there's people out there raising their grandchildren, dealing with the need to be right, this you hang on with this, both in ourselves and others. What are some solutions that you can give us? Well, with kids and grandkids, how to help them with that? I found there's no substitute for time. Uh, there was a time in my life when I was extremely involved in business and music, and I was traveling. I, w- I was gone a lot, but I rationalized in, in my mind <laughs> that uh, if I was home one day a week and could spend you know two hours with my kids doing something that I was giving them quality time and I, I didn't need to give them so much quantity time as long as I gave them quality time. Well, I came to find out the hard way that, um, that that's not true. Certainly we do want to give kids quality time. And, and with parents, I, I know that, uh, you know, during those 
child rearing years that, that that's uh, when uh, parents are building their careers and uh, especially if it's a, a single parent family and you know the mom or dad has you know all the pressure to not only bring in the income but to raise the kids and, and stuff like that there are other things that you have to spend your time with but figuring out how, how to work that out there's just there's really no substitute for spending time with them and that's to me that's being present not just in the same room with them, but being present in what they're doing. My wife is a substitute teacher, and one of the things, sometimes when she uh, is in a high school, she's found that the, the students have their own laptops and they're working on projects that the teacher left for them, and it might be a class you know, where she doesn't have any experience in or whatever. Uh, but rather than just sit at the desk in the front of the room and make sure that nobody gets in trouble, she's found that if she walks around to them and just each one of them converses a little bit and says, hey, show me what you're doing. I, I don't know anything about this. She's found that they're really interested and they open up and they'll tell her what they're working and what they're finding and stuff like that. Well, same thing's true with kids and with grandkids. Yeah, I totally agree with that. With technology today, parents think that if they're in the same room, like you said, or even under the same roof, like the child's in the bedroom playing video games or social media or on the phone, and they're in the kitchen or in their office working, that somehow that's spending time with them or just being silent eating dinner or everybody on their phone while they're at the same table is not time together, is what you're saying. Exactly. I was really fortunate when I was a kid. I, I was an only child, and my parents were both hardworking, uh, sort of blue-collar workers. And But we had breakfast together every morning. Uh, we had dinner together. We called it supper. Uh, and, uh, and we talked about our day and what was going on. And then the, even though uh, they were not musicians and not musically inclined, and, and I was, you know, they would ask me about what what I was doing, and uh, they would you know go to my concerts and talk about stuff and things like that. And so, a time like that, I was really fortunate to get it. And uh, doing that with kids and grandkids, and then when we're doing it, just constantly building them up, just saying "I love you" and looking them in the eye, getting down on their level. I used to tell my kids when they were growing up, I had two girls, one with blue eyes, one with brown, and then a boy with brown eyes. And I used to tell them individually, not when the others were around, I'd say, you know, if you if you lined up all the little blue-eyed, blonde-haired girls in the world, if you lined them all up, I'd look at them and I would pick you every time to be my daughter. And just, you know, saying things like that and constantly building them up and and letting them know that they're in our family and they're loved and that they just have value for who they are. That's huge. Now, you know, they're going to make bad choices. They're going to mess up from time to time. And uh, what my wife and I have, have learned to do, we didn't do it early on, uh, but reminding them, that, just making really clear that they know, look, you're not a bad kid. You're, you're not a bad person. Um, the choice you made here wasn't the best choice, you know, and there may be consequences uh, for that, but you're not a bad person. And you know, I love you, and uh, God's not mad at you. But we just need to look at what happened here and see how we can not do it again and tell them why, you know, it was a bad choice and what it may have hurt and that kind of thing. And then just uh, always ending up a conversation like that with uh, hugging them and giving them pats on the back and smiles and, you know, the noogies and 
you know, whatever physical expressions of affection that are appropriate for their age and that kind of stuff. Those things are, for me, I found are just, they're indispensable. Yeah, invaluable. I don't think there's a price you can put on there. So the three things you said was spending quality time with your children or grandkids, not just being in the same room, constantly building them up with words that shows that you love them unconditionally, and then showing that physical expression of affection. Right. Awesome. And those are so three easy things to do to build up their emotional, their spiritual, mental, and even physical development. Yeah, they are. They really are. That, that's great insight. And it, it's so true. And, you know, uh, we can all do that, no matter our age or our skill level or our background. Uh, many of us uh, came from homes where parents didn't spend time with us or when you know, may have a dad who never told them that uh, he loved them or, uh, you know, never encouraged them, but just always discouraged them. Uh, there's a great movie out now called uh, I Can Only Imagine. And it's about the guy uh, who started and is the band leader of a group called Mercy Me. His dad was pretty much the, the bad example poster guy. of, But then it, he did change later on in life and had a miraculous transformation uh, by God's grace. And the, in the last couple of years or so of his life, they reconnected and had a good relationship. So, you know, it's possible even when you haven't had those things to do them yourself and uh, do them right. And then to realize even when you're older that, oh, wow, I, you know, I blew it with my kids, but God's grace will cover that. And hopefully if both parties are, are willing that their relationships can be restored. Okay. Well, we are out of time, Paul, and I cannot believe that we have to end our conversation, at least online. I will definitely keep in touch and Thank you so much for for sharing your knowledge and insight in a book and on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I look forward to staying in touch. Okay, sounds great. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. As always, until next time, always be learning and always be growing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Go to parentpumpradio.com and click on the pink box on the top of our homepage to listen to our new and archived shows. To be instantly notified of new episodes, subscribe to our RSS feed. The RSS feed button is located at the top of the page where all our shows are featured. And after listening to the show, go to parentpumpradio.com or our Facebook page to leave your comments, questions, and topic suggestions. And while you're at our website, sign up to receive a free gift. Until next time, have a wonderful week.